Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're recording here on Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. There is a lot going on in New York City and state politics, and we're focusing here on the show today on what's happening in state government with just a few days left in the state legislative session in Albany, where the state legislature is determining which bills each of the two houses will pass, which will make it through both houses and head towards the governor's desk, and the potential for what we often see at the end of the legislative session in the spring, some sort of big grand bargain, sometimes called a big ugly of many different priorities and policies uh, sort of mashed into a major bill towards the end of the session. And our guests today will help us uh, have a little bit more insight into what's happening in those negotiations, whether we're going to see some sort of big bill towards the end of the session and get into several specifics. In just a moment, I'm going to be joined by State Senator Andrew Gennardis, who is a Democrat from Brooklyn, will get into what's happening in Albany and state government and then also talk, of course, about this election year. Uh, state Senator Gennardis currently represents New York's 22nd state Senate district in Brooklyn, including neighborhoods of Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bensonhurst, Bath Beach, Gravesend, Garrison Beach, Manhattan Beach and Marine Park. He was elected in 2018, took office in 2019 and uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of attention in New York politics on how in those 2018 elections, there were a, a group of progressive Democratic challengers to sitting Democrats who won primaries against what was then known as the Independent Democratic Conference. And those are, of course, key primary elections leading towards Democratic control of the state Senate to match the state assembly. And of course, with a Democratic governor uh, at the time was Andrew Cuomo. Uh, but... My guest here today, State Senator Gennardis, was actually one of the Democrats who flipped a seat uh, from Republican to Democrat in that 2018 year that was also uh, especially instrumental in Democrats taking control of the state Senate and therefore all of state government starting in 2019. And over the last few years, of course, we've seen this flood of liberal, progressive, Democratic priorities getting passed in in Albany and really changing the state in many, many ways. And so it'll be good to catch up with State Senator Gennaris to reflect on those last few years and, and a little bit on his uh, bid for re-election here this year, which is a redistricting year. And so State Senator Gennaris recently announced that he will run for re-election in what is the newly designed 26th district. Uh, we'll get into that in a, in a little bit, but that's how it goes here in these once every 10 year uh, cycles after the census where there is redistricting. Uh, so a lot of a lot of things to discuss with State Senator Andrew Gennaris in just one moment. First, if you've missed any of our recent reporting at Gotham Gazette, find it at GothamGazette.com. We've been covering a lot going on both in state and city politics and government. Uh, after the state budget was passed in April, uh, a lot of attention has shifted towards city budget negotiations. We've been covering a lot of that. Uh, also looking at issues that may or may not get passed in Albany. And then this whole redistricting situation, including a lot of what's happening around uh, the congressional lines in New York. My other most recent guest here on the podcast is State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. She has decided to sort of move uh, geography and run in a different district than she lives in uh, with, with a lot of musical chairs happening 
check out that conversation at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcast or the Gotham Gazette site. And we have a lot of other great conversations, of course, here on the show that you can find in those podcast feeds or at the Gotham Gazette site. Uh, Alessandra Biaggi is going to be running, it seems, in the Democratic primary for the New York 17th Congressional District against Sean Patrick Maloney in what is quickly becoming one of the most interesting, fascinating, most watched, uh, intense primaries in New York, uh, although there'll be several of those. Uh, all right. So if you've missed any of our reporting, check it out at GothamGazette.com. Any of the podcast episodes, find those at Max Politics, uh, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. All right. Let's talk to State Senator Andrew Granardis, a Democrat from Brooklyn. Uh, State Senator Granardis, thanks for taking some time here. I know it's uh, you're very busy in Albany with the end of session work, but appreciate you joining me. How are you doing today? Uh, good morning, Ben. Uh, doing great. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me on today to chat. Yeah, there's a lot of different things that you're uh, involved with, things you've helped get over the finish line, things you're trying to get to the finish line that are your top priorities, and then uh, so, some other things being debated and, and negotiated among the governor and your Democratic majority in the state Senate and the Democratic majority in the Assembly. So let's dig in. Um, first, one of the issues that you've been most involved with is this issue of the speed cameras in New York City. Uh, there was an announcement of, of a deal. Uh, the, the mayor was celebrating it. Uh, you know, it's not exactly everything that, that some people were calling for and working on, but uh, a potential deal here in place. What's the status of that negotiation? What can we uh, sort of expect as an update on the laws around the speed cameras in New York City school zones? Yeah, so uh, this is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, one of my top priorities has always been street safety, pedestrian safety, uh, and the um, the speed camera program. Uh, so last week, we came to an agreement with the Assembly uh, on a proposal to extend the uh, school zone speed camera program for an additional three years. Uh, you know, because when we came in in 2019, when the new majority came in, we uh, renewed the program uh, for three years, and we expanded it from 140 speed zones to 750 uh, school zones. Uh, this year, the cameras were were slated to turn off on J uh, July 1. So it was incredibly important that we came to an agreement to keep those cameras on because we know that they are actually a proven tool to help reduce speeding when the cameras are operational, uh, which I'll get to in a second. So we uh, we extended the, the, the length of the, the program until 2025, which is a big win for street safety. And we also expanded the number of hours that the cameras can operate. Uh, in 2019, one of the, one of the uh, compromises we had to make was to limit the hours, was actually to expand the hours. Originally, it was from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. We succeeded in expanding it from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., on the premise that people are continuously going to and from school buildings, even outside of school hours. Uh, but they were only operational during the weekday, 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, and we know, based on three years of data, that more than 60% of all traffic crashes that have resulted in fatalities or injuries citywide over the last three years have occurred during the overnight hours when cameras were turned off. So as part of this year's renewal agreement, uh, it was incredibly important that we were able to uh, keep the cameras on 24-7, um, which will help drive down this culture of reckless driving and help reduce speeding, especially in some of our most dangerous corridors and intersections. Uh, when a camera is operational, speeding reduces up to 72%. We know this based on years of data now. Uh, and so there's no good justification why the camera should be turned off at any point in time. So uh, we have conceptual agreement for a three-year renewal 
turn the cameras on 24 seven. Now we're waiting to get a, a resolution of support from the city council, which we're anticipating we'll receive uh, after tomorrow um, or by the end of this week. And then we'll take it up in Albany and hopefully nothing trips it up in these last final days, but we'll be able to uh, successfully uh, keep these cameras on. Uh, so it sounds like a deal is coming together there, as you said, a conceptual agreement, but there's still some some hurdles to get over. Um, but it seems like that's on track for the agreement that you mentioned. Um, this relates, of course, to the issue of home rule, what New York City government has control over within New York City. Uh, other, other things, many other things fall under this category of, you know, things that the state controls that relate to uh, what happens in New York City, uh, questions around how much control New York City should have over, you name it. Uh, but in this case, sort of you know, street infrastructure and street safety measures. Um, there's also a discussion about mayoral control of city schools. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but on the on the concept of home rule and the speed cameras, and there's also questions about the red light cameras, uh, you know, and, and we could go down the list. There's housing, you know, regulations and laws. There's all sorts of things. But uh, on this question of home rule, What's the discussion like in Albany? You know, it seems like there's some legislators who uh, have the philosophy, yeah, we should give as much, you know, local control to New York City government as, as we can and get out of the way and let the locally, you know, elected government there sort of run run things. Uh, and then there's obviously others who think, oh, well, a lot of these issues are, are statewide issues. And then there's probably others who don't necessarily want to say it, but, you know, want to keep power. They want to keep power in state government. It helps people trade things. They, you know, they can get priorities. They can get attention for their issues. Maybe some of that is very, you know, winds up having positive effects in their communities and their districts, but it's, you know, it's about political power. Um, what is that discussion like right now in the, at least in the state Senate? And was there any, you know, was there any real close discussion around, hey, let's just give, you know, let's just give New York City, you know, this type of power permanently to just do their own thing? So uh, I'll, I'll say two things at the outset. Number one, uh, you know, this issue of home rule, uh, you kind of alluded to it, it, is not new. And, you know, this has been a source of tension between state and local governments going back, you know, almost 150 years. Sure. I mean, if you look back at New York history in the 1850s at the constitutional conventions, like this was a source of discussion <laughs> and rigorous debate and the, the, the back and forth over how much control state government should have over local government and vice versa. Um, so this is not a new concept. This is not a new phenomenon. And we're not going to solve it with one particular issue or one particular bill or one particular legislator or governor or mayor, or et cetera. Um, and secondly, you know, I, I, I very much believe that New York City should have control over its own traffic enforcement. I don't think there's any reason why a senator from Buffalo should have any say over what the speed limit should be in the borough of Brooklyn and vice versa. I don't think I, as a senator from Brooklyn, should have any say about a speed camera or a speed limit in the city of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. um, so as you know, just as a, as a fundamental premise, uh, you know, as it relates to what we were trying to do this year, the problem with with home rule is that there's no one set definition as to what what we mean when we say home rule. Do we mean home rule to include all traffic enforcement, automated and non-automated? Do we mean home rule to say control just of the automated, the existing automated programs? Do we mean home rule to say existing automated programs plus any 
any other program you want to create? Uh, you know, do we have a sunset on home rule? Do we give it permit? Like there's so many permutations as to what, what the conversation around home rule is or can be. And I think we need more time to build consensus and have, the, you know, have conversations first as to what that definition is and then try to build consensus around it. This year, uh, you know, even though we're only in session, I think one day less than we were in last year, the calendar has been a bit more compressed. You know, we had a late budget. We've had a bunch of other things pop up that have taken up our energy and our attention. And I think we just need more time to have the types of conversations with colleagues and with legislators um, to, to, to better flesh out what that home rule could be and then mm-hmm. try to chart a path to get there. Um, but simultaneously as that, as those, and, and we started having those conversations. And like I said, you know, there's a lot of you know, questions and a lot of different you know, uh, ideas out there. At the same time, the cameras were gonna turn off on January, on July 1. So while we were also trying to have these broad philosophical conversations on home rule and what that could be, we also had to have serious nuts and bolts conversations about what the, well, about keeping the cameras on and what type of expansion we could secure the votes for um, and why it was important that we get a 24-hour expansion. So you know, at a certain point during the legislative process, you kind of have to shift gears a little bit and as the, the end of session draws near, that window of opportunity starts to shrink exponentially. And so I think we had to put the home rule conversation on the back burner to really prioritize the speed camera conversation. It does not mean that home rule, at least from my perspective or my, my viewpoint, is entirely dead. I would love to revisit this conversation you know, in future years. Yeah. I don't know if we'll, we'll get into it. I want to get to some other more pressing things um, in terms of things that are really on the table here. But, you know, that discussion also reminds me of, of property tax reform, not not necessarily exactly as as a home rule issue, although obviously it could be. But around what you were talking about, about how sort of the big structural stuff, you know, winds up getting pushed off the table and, you know, there there very quickly becomes these immediate, uh, you know, needs to, that need to be determined in terms of, you know, just figuring out the extension and maybe some tweaks to something and not the bigger structural discussion. But that also relates to something that is really very much on the table right now, which is mayoral control of New York City schools. There's been a little bit of reporting, I think, in the New York Post uh, and maybe elsewhere about a deal coming together on a three-year extension of mayoral control of New York City schools, which is also set to expire uh, soon, if if not renewed uh, in June, uh, just like the 421A real estate uh, tax break program. Uh, and, and we'll get to that in a second. What can you tell us here on Wednesday, May 25th, about where the discussion around an extension of mayoral control of city schools stands? And I should note, before you answer that, that you used to be counsel to uh, then Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, so folks should know that if they don't uh, listening to this already. So you have quite a quite a close and personal relationship, I think, uh, with with Mayor Eric Adams, and obviously you've partnered together on this speed camera issue and, and others. Um, so that's important context for folks to know as you as you talk more about some of these priorities. You've outed me, Ben. You've outed me. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to fly under the radar there. No, uh, obviously I, I worked for uh, the, the now mayor for five years. Um, um, so I think right now, you know, it's, there's no deal yet. You know, I think there are still ongoing conversations. It seems that folks are coalescing around this idea of a three-year renewal, um, though nothing is in writing. There's no bill, you know, there's no ink dry yet on any, on any mm-hmm. agreement. Um, so it sounds like a three-year agreement is in the works. 
Um, and one of the things, you know, there, were, there was a hearing on this earlier this year uh, that was chaired by uh, by Senator Liu and Senator Mayer in our, in our chamber. Um, you know, we, we solicited a lot of feedback and a lot of community input uh, from educators, from parents, from the city, from other stakeholders to kind of figure out how to get, you know, how to, how to tweak. You know, we always kind of tweak and make things better, right? Nothing's ever perfect uh, at any point. Um, and one of the things that we heard a lot about was finding ways to meaningfully improve um, per, you know, parents' um, engagement and accountability, you know, and um, I, I think that there have been a lot of conversations about trying to find ways to give voices to different student populations uh, and parents um, who might not have voices in the process right now, whether that's through the, the panel for educational policy uh, or through the local community education councils and finding ways to make sure that there are those kind of lines of accountability between the school governance structure and the stakeholders in the system, which ultimately are the parents and the teachers and the and the students. So uh, I think we're going to see some changes and some tweaks to what we currently have. Uh, I think it's incredibly important that we do keep control of the schools, you know, under the mayor um, and that we do have that type of direct control over the school system. It's the largest school system in the country. I think having a direct accountability line is, is really, really important here. Uh, and certainly one that I'm very supportive of. But, you know, I think it's interesting. Um, a, a lot of these conversations, uh, whether it's mayoral control or street cameras or whatever, whenever the city's asking for something, for some kind of control, it, I, you know, a lot of these conversations tend to become proxies for how you view how the current mayor is doing. Um, mm. You know, I was, uh, you know, a couple, two years ago, I had made some comments suggesting that I was, even though I'd always been in favor of mayoral control, because of some of the decisions that I thought the previous mayor and previous chancellors had made during the pandemic um, around schools, I really questioned them. And it really made me question whether or not I, I continue to support mayoral control, or maybe one, I think twice. Um, but I think, you know, now with new leadership in place, my view on that has, you know, I've, I regain more confidence in that type of governance structure. But maybe people who, we're more supportive of some of the decisions the previous mayor made are now less comfortable or are more skeptical of mayoral control. So it becomes a very interesting proxy back and forth. Um, I think at the end of the day, what's important is that we have a system that, that uh, is stable and that the students see that stability and that parents and teachers and administrators and other stakeholders see that stability as well. And we've done mayoral control for 20 years at this point. Um, and I think it's proven to be a, a pretty good model and that we should stick with that model and find ways to improve it rather than throw it out the window and try to start a new, especially this late in the game. So that, that actually gets to something about mayor control I wanted to ask you, which is why at this point does this need any renewals? I mean, we, you know, you, you in Albany in the state legislature and New York City and the city council pass laws all the time. They don't have sunset clauses. Some do, but most don't. And the idea is, you know, your your lawmakers, your legislators, if there's something wrong with the law, you know, eventually you can always tweak it in some way. But it's not part of this, uh, you know, this process with mayoral control that has really become so torturous every two, three years, whatever it's been. Uh, you know, it's varied, obviously. And it was it was clearly a way for Governor Cuomo and state Senate Republicans, and even some state, you know, some uh, Democrats in the legislature to, to torture Bill de Blasio. Uh, some of that he brought upon himself, of course. But um, 
why, why not just make it in, you know, make it indefinite. And then if it needs tweaking at different times, or if there's the political decision to revoke it, that could also be done, but why not just, what, what, is there any discussion at all about just, Hey, this should just be the law and make it, you know, indefinite. And if it needs changes, you know, you revisit it. Um, you know, I, I, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, in theory, kind of what you laid out, you know, makes a lot of sense, right? They have a permanent extension and then if you need to tweak, you can always come back and tweak. But I think the reality of public policymaking, especially legislative policymaking, is that there is often so much inertia that um, does not allow ideas to get off the ground or get over the finish line unless there is some type and this is a flaw you know unfortunately or a characteristic or um of our of our democratic system that you know unless there is some type of time clock unless there is some type of urgency um it's very hard to get things across the finish lines and make tweaks and make minor changes unless you're going to do something to you know keep the program intact or, or make significant changes and i think that's the case here with manual control um you know if you were to have a permanent extension and then say, oh, we'll come back and maybe we'll tweak the, the panel composition in a year from now. Honestly, that, that's, a, that's a very small change to make in the grand scheme of the entire legislative agenda that comes before us in Albany, which I often characterize as trying to drink out of a fire hose because the, mm-hmm. the number of issues that come at you every single day are just you know, it's too many to count. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, it, it's we lose the opportunity to make some of those changes when we give up, when we when we have permanent authorizations. I think conceptually, I agree that we should have permanent authorizations, especially or at least long term authorizations, especially for something so important as, you know, control of the school system. Um, but on the flip side, you know, having these sunsets does allow us to, you know, to keep coming back and saying, OK, look, we We've heard over the, we've saw the experience over the last three years, four years, five years. We're, we want to make these changes right now. And here's our opportunity to do it. It gives us a, an occasion to, to be proactive in making some changes as well, which there is some value and virtue in. So, uh, you know, I think it really depends on your perspective of the legislative process of kind of where you're sitting at the table. You'll probably have a different view on this. Um, you mentioned that, you know, with the new administration, you know, you, you feel more, you know, you, you had some issues with how Mayor de Blasio and his administration handled, you know, some schooling issues, especially around the pandemic. Uh, but you, you know, you feel more confident under Mayor Adams. Is there one thing in particular you'd point to under Mayor Adams that, you know, around education policy that, you know, had, makes you feel, uh, you know, more confident in his leadership of the schools or, or something that, you know, you really feel good about in the direction that he said early on? Uh, yeah, I would point to two examples. Number one, I think his most recent example about um, you know creating a, a program for dyslexia screening, which has been a you know really been a top priority for a lot of literacy advocates and members of the legislature for quite a few years. And you know this was, in my view, low hanging fruit. Um, and like the, the 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 benefits of diagnosing dyslexia at an early age and then providing the right types of curriculum supports and student supports to help students so they can learn to read, learn to read properly, and then keep themselves on pace throughout the rest of their academic career is just like so incredible. Um, and yet trying to advance that issue with the prior administration was like pushing 
you know, rocks up a boulder, up a mountain, right? It was, it was nearly impossible. And it was a very, in my view, low hanging fruit that could have easily been done. And this mayor came in with this chancellor and said, look, we're going to do this. And they announced it and they're doing it. And it certainly helped that this is also part of the mayor's personal experiences, his own uh, experiences with dyslexia and with learning disabilities. So I think it's personal for him, but this is going to affect hundreds of thousands of students in our school system. And the value of that can't be overstated. And then I think the, you know, the administration's nuanced take on um, gifted and talented learning and accelerated learning, you know, however you want to characterize it, uh, recognizing that um, there are inequities in how our gifted and talented programs currently are administered and who has access to those programs, but also recognizing that there's a need for some type of accelerated program for, for certain students and that we shouldn't shut students out or shouldn't intentionally hold them behind because we can't do it everywhere else. I think they're striking the right balance in expanding access to every district um, and to making sure that all students have the opportunity to, to get into those programs and that they are able to have you know, uh, educational opportunities commensurate with their ability at, at every step of the way. And that was, again, something that we could not get traction on from the prior administration, who took a very hostile view to the concerns of parents and students on this. And it was a very black or white view. It was, you know, it, there was no nuance in the prior administration's understanding of, of this issue and the different iterations of this issue. So I think those are two examples I would point to that I've been pleased to see the mayor and the chancellor lead on. And I'm sure there'll be more to come as... Um, as the administration continues. Okay, you are um, leading the charge in the state Senate on a bill you're sponsoring to uh, create uh, protections and, um, you know, ensure more uh, timely payment and so forth for freelance workers, gig workers. This has obviously been a, a fast growing uh, sector of the economy, stretching through many, many different industries and, and types of work um, that we've seen an explosion of. New York City passed uh, its version of, of this legislation, which is slightly different uh, than yours at the state level. Is that something um, that you see making its way into some final agreement here? Is the timeline too tight? Uh, what's the status of your uh, attempt through legislation to create new statewide protections for freelance workers? Uh, I think we are very close. Uh, you know, we're probably on like the four yard line with oh, wow. uh, seven days to go, eight days to go, <laughs> maybe a five yard line. Um, so I think we're very close. You know, uh -huh. we, um, we, we have a good bill. We have a great partner in the assembly, in Assemblymember Bronson, who's really been working on these issues for a decade. So really, in my, my hat to him um, for, for really taking the charge on this, even before these, these issues became, you know, came to our attention. Um, so I'm hopeful that we can pass it through the Senate uh, at a minimum this year. I know, I know things get a little bit tougher on the assembly side because there's so many more assembly members and so many more issues to kind of get through the funnel. So I don't know if we'll be able to get it through both houses this year, but I think we'll make significant progress in the Senate, though I, I still remain hopeful that a final deal can be reached. I think we have agreement on the, the framework. Now it's just a matter of getting it through the process in these last couple of days. And this is going to be a game changer for so many freelancers across the state. Uh, you mentioned gig workers. I want to make a distinction. This is not about gig workers or, or gig worker classification, oh, which is a separate whole other mm -hmm. separate issue. Um, this is really about giving freelancers, people who are truly independent and truly freelance, uh, work at a freelance way, 
um, contractual rights. They get the right to a contract. They get the right to repayment terms. They get protections in court. Um, they get to say that you have to pay me within 30 days unless we agree to another schedule. Um, you know, really, really important things because so many freelancers across the state report having to live paycheck to paycheck, having to report not being paid on time, uh, being being given less than what they were told they were going to be hired for, a whole set of um, uh, of issues. And like you said, like we did this in New York City, you know, um, then city councilman Brad Lander passed a similar bill a couple of years ago. It has saved billions of dollars for freelancers and helped them recoup billions of dollars in stolen or unpaid wages. And the impact of that now statewide is really going to be significant. So I think it's a great bill. Very excited about it. Uh, I'm very hopeful that we can get over the finish line. Five yard line in the in the legislature overall, or five yard line in the state senate? Because you you know you said I think, you're, <laughs> you're pretty I hopeful. I think five about the yard state line. Um, I think five yard line in the legislature overall. Oh wow! Um, okay. I I think we are. Um, I, I think we have gotten we've gotten into a good place in the Senate. Um, we we've we've really worked on on language, and we've and we've really kind of perfected it. And uh, I'm very optimistic that it'll come up for a vote in the next couple of days. Okay. And now we are just trying to make sure that we can get it on, over the finish line in the assembly as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, oftentimes, you know, at the end of session, there are a lot of good ideas that as that funnel kind of narrows, it gets a little bit harder to get everything through and not because bills aren't worthy. It just becomes a matter of the clock. So we are, we're working feverishly to get it over right now. We're speaking here with State Senator Andrew Gennardis of Brooklyn, who currently represents the 22nd district. Uh, those are shifting, and we'll get to that in our in our final couple of minutes real soon. Uh, a couple other sort of substantive issues uh, on the state government agenda here. Um, is, is there anything right now um, that we haven't mentioned that is sort of um, sucking up a lot of the air in your discussions with your colleagues when you are uh, conferencing, you know, when the state Senate Democratic supermajority is is conferencing uh, negotiations with the assembly supermajority Democrats, the governor. Are there one or two things that seem to really be dominating this final stretch of negotiations that uh, we haven't mentioned? Well, I think, you know, I'll probably highlight three things that I think everyone is has top of mind, uh, aside from all of the great bills that I talked about that I'm doing. Um, um, and, and these are things that I think other folks have talked about as well, including the governor. I think she made comments yesterday to this effect. Um, we obviously absolutely need to take a look at our gun laws. Uh, in the wake of Buffalo, in the wake of Texas, you know, there's more work to be done to improve public safety and to uh, you know get the, get the, get these these weapons of death out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Uh, number one, uh, number two, we are taking a very serious look at what we can do to protect abortion rights in the state. Um, you know, everyone is in. Uh, we we know what's going to happen to Roe when the when the decision comes down. We know it's going to be eviscerated. Um, and what we did two years ago, three years ago with the Reproductive Health Act is not enough. We have to really take a serious look at how we can expand and protect that right uh, here in the state uh, and make New York State a place where people can come and receive the type of medical care that they need as it relates to their pregnancy. Um, and I think the third thing, and this is um, this is a very, very big uh, topic, so I don't know how much of it we'll get to, is affordable housing, uh, whether that's the preservation of affordable housing through rent protections or the or spurring and incentivizing the creation of new, truly affordable housing, uh, you know, is really, really top priority. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think we have to do a lot more on that front because we are in an urgent uh, and existential housing crisis that is both 
uh, you know, partly a lack of supply and partly a lack of the preservation of existing housing, uh, which is doubly problematic. And is that a reference to the 421A program? The governor has a, you know, proposed a 485W uh, with some changes to the, you know, the the structure and and requiring some deeper affordability in the units that are built where uh, developers get that tax break. Is that a reference to that? And and is that something you are personally, um, you know, trying to get a deal done around. I mean, the governor seemed yesterday, we're talking here on Wednesday, May 25th, the governor seemed yesterday, I believe, to sort of say it didn't seem like a deal was coming together on that before the end of session. Yeah, I think, you know, there's still lots of conversations. Uh, I think it's an important conversation to keep having, you know, until the clock runs out, because it's such an urgent crisis, uh, especially in New York City, but really across the state. Um, and it's it's broader than just the conversation on 421A. Um, you know, you, you, at the outset, we talked a little bit, you mentioned property taxes. You know, if, if we actually had a real functioning property tax system that was not so dysfunctional and not so broken and not so, um, you know, uh, just pro- problematic in so many ways, you wouldn't need a 421A program. The fact of the matter is it is incredibly expensive to build, to build rental housing in New York City compared to other types of housing in New York City because our property tax system is so incredibly messed up. Um, and so we have a lack of uh, you know, the ability to finance the construction of new, truly affordable, not not sky rises that have you know marble floors that you know people making $200,000 a year are going to afford, really, really affordable housing um, is, is, a, is an urgent need. And there's also conversations about how do we help, you know, how do we keep rents low for people who are currently not in rent protected apartments? Um, You know, there's a lot of conversations around the good cause eviction bill, around finding ways to extend protections to, you know, tenants that are not rent stabilized, um, both in New York City and across the state. Look, you see the headlines all the time, you know, 100 percent rent increases, 75 percent rent increase Mm -hmm. in certain neighborhoods, not sustainable and, and people who are living paycheck to paycheck still because their wages have not kept up, uh, especially in, in you know, with this era of inflation that we're going through. Um, housing is incredibly important. And so while I don't know if we'll come to a final agreement, it certainly is top of mind for lots of people because this is what we hear from constituents day in and day out, um, you know, what they need from us. I was going to ask you to give me a sort of uh, where on the football field the good cause eviction was. Uh, you know, my read of the situation is that this doesn't seem like it's going to get into the to the end zone, for better or worse. I'm not taking you know that's not a position on it, but it you know it seems like there's obviously a lot of uh, progressive push for it. Um, it's not something the governor has backed. Uh, it doesn't seem you know it doesn't seem like it has the type of momentum. Um, you know, that, that would be needed, but of course things come together last minute in Albany. What's your, what's your sort of forecast on good cause eviction protections, um, passing here? Where, where is it on the, on the football field? You know, I'm not as intimately involved in those negotiations Mm -hmm. or discussions. So uh, I don't want to peg a number that I could be wrong about. Um, I just know that it's something that people keep talking about. And there are a lot of concerns about people losing their homes because some of these rent increases they're experiencing are, are go above and beyond what is justified. Um, you know, there are there is you know definitely a space where you have to have conversations about what is a justified rent increase when property taxes go up, when water bills go up, when heating fuel and heating costs go up. But where is that balancing line, and where is the middle ground to to both account properly for the costs of housing? 
but also what you know the, how that translates into rent. Um, and we live in a housing ecosystem that needs to be balanced. And you know, for better or for worse, we have to continue to maintain that balance. Otherwise, the whole equal, equilibrium will be askew, and that becomes unsustainable. Last, so, uh, last, yeah, last two questions for you here, State Senator Gennardis. Um, w- coming back to mayoral control, it also relates to the 421A discussion that we're having, um, and, and other other things. There's been. A lot of attention, uh, news coverage, and a lot of discussion, some of it public, some of it private, as, as you know, on both counts, that Mayor Adams has not handled the you know relationship with the legislature particularly well here in his first session. People especially mystified by some of that, uh, given that he is a former state senator and has been around a long time. Um, what do you make of that? And have have you had any sort of discussions with the mayor where you've tried to, you know, give him uh, some advice or, you know, urge him to do certain things? You mentioned that hearing on mayoral control of schools that happen. He, you know, ruffled some feathers by only, you know, zooming in for a couple minutes from a car uh, to, to chat and didn't, you know, appear before the legislature at the hearing. He obviously sent his school's chancellor to do so. But uh, any assessment of, of that and any insights in, that you can provide for people into, you know, sort of how you've been approaching that situation, given that you are, you know, have been a close ally of the mayor? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, I think that a lot of the kind of focus on the mayor and his relationship in Albany, um, you know, some of it I think is misplaced. And I think this is really in some ways a, uh, a function of how you view your your own relationship with the mayor. Um, you know, if, if people are politically opposed to the mayor, they're going to be predisposed to say the mayor is not doing enough. And if you are uh, an ally of the mayor or someone who's supportive of what the mayor is trying to do or the city is trying to do, you're in touch with city hall, you're in touch with the agencies and you have those working relationships to, um, to say that you, that there are ongoing conversations. And I think, you know, you could point to the same thing that happened in the last administration. You know, I would say, you know, some of my colleagues had much more robust outreach from the prior administration than I did because I took a critical stance against some of the mayor's decisions and against some of the mayor's policy. So I, I heard less from city hall. Um, and I think, you know, really, you have to take the, the chatter about the mayor's efforts in Albany with a, a, a grain of salt and, and with that context in mind. Um, having said that, I think that the mayor has had a lot on his plate coming into a new administration. He has been really, uh, we've had a number of high profile uh, public safety incidents that have taken up their time and energy um, that I know that they've been incredibly focused on. This is a, you know, being mayor of New York is an incredibly difficult job to walk into for anyone. Uh, there is no prior training you could have before you walk into into City Hall like that to take control. Um, and so I, you know, I give the mayor a little bit of slack and his team a little bit of slack as they're building out the full flesh, you know, fleshing out their, their full administration. And, you know, my advice to them has always been more engagement is always better than less engagement. Even for the folks that you think are uh, aligned with you, aligned against you, you can always do more engagement. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's not a, that's not a symptom of, uh, of, of not doing enough or doing too much. It's just, the more you're engaged, the more you're part of conversations, the more you are part of the process. Uh, and that's been my advice to their team. And I think that they've done a pretty decent job from where I sit and on the issues that I've really been focusing on to have that type of partnership. We, um, 
we can have you back uh, before uh, your August uh, primary, if if you have one, Love or that. before you, before your yeah. fall general election. But but last question is your your district is shifting. The new lines that have been court approved move the district that you're based you know based in. You live in and you're based in in Bay Ridge. Uh, really swinging the district quite a bit um, towards uh, downtown Brooklyn, towards Sunset Park, uh, Park Slope, and 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 so forth. Um, how are you sort of just thinking about that? You know, it's a, it's a it's a much more it's become a much more sort of progressive liberal district than some of the more moderate and conservative parts of the district you currently represent. So, how are you thinking about you know adjusting to the new district, both geographically and politically? Uh, just a final thought there before we say goodbye. Yeah, you know, uh, obviously, you know, I have a lot of concerns about how the court process ended up and, and kind of there's the undemocratic nature as to how this all played out. But nevertheless, I'm excited about the process of running in this new district. I'm running in the district where I, I have lived almost my entire life, you know, stretching from Bay Ridge to, to Vinegar Hill. Um, you know, uh, I have great familiarity with a lot of these neighborhoods. I have a lot of support in these communities already. I've built deep relationships with different uh, community activists, political leaders, elected officials in these communities. Uh, and so I feel like I have a very good base of support to start off with. And I don't think it changes my view on politics all that much. You know, I think that despite the, uh, you know, the, the conservative leanings of my current district, I have been, uh, I've stayed true to my values. I've led on issues that I think are incredibly important to deliver for people in the neighborhoods I represent, plus neighborhoods across the city. And I don't think that's going to change at all with this new district. What might change is, you know, how loud or softly I I, um, I highlight certain issues or others, but I don't think it changes how I vote. I don't think it changes the issues that I prioritize. I don't think it changes the issues that, uh, that I care about or, or the values that I got elected on in the first place. So uh, it's going to be an exciting challenge. Lots of new people to meet, lots of things to get done. Um, you know, and as soon as the legislative session is over this year, uh, I can't wait to get on the campaign trail and just get back out there. All right. We're going to leave it there with State Senator Andrew Gennardis. He currently represents New York's 22nd State Senate District. But as we were just discussing there at the very end, district lines are shifting all over the city and state uh, due to the census and the decennial redistricting. So his new district will be the 26th Senate District coming up in this year's elections. Some of uh, the pieces of the district remain the same and some will shift as we were just discussing. State Senator Andrew Gennardis, Democrat from Brooklyn. Thanks for the time and the thoughts and, uh, and be well. Thanks, Ben. We'll go talking to you soon. Take care.